How many of you have ever been to a magic show? Seen an illusionist dazzle the crowd with their magic tricks? Years ago, we had a, uh, an upward flag football uh, year in celebration here, and we invited a magician named Danny Ray. And one of his best tricks, he needed a person from the crowd to come forward, and he wanted to make sure that no one could accuse him of hand-picking that person. So he blew up a beach ball and said, the fifth person that touches this beach ball, I want you to come forward. There's no way you could manipulate that or predict who that fifth person would be. Throws the beach ball out there. They bat it around. The fifth kid hits it. Little kid comes running forward. The magician says, hello, little boy. What is your name? And just like that. (laughs) And he said, Timmy Smith. And that wasn't his name, but just work with me. The rest of the story is true. Just don't remember his name. Timmy Smith, I want you to take this quarter and this Sharpie, and I want you to write your initials on it. So he writes T-S on the quarter, gives it to the magician, goes and sits down. The magician sets it on the counter and says, we'll get back to that in a minute. But I'm a little thirsty. I need a refreshment. So he reaches over and he gets a can of Coke. And he pops it open so we can all hear that it was like the real deal. Pours himself a can of Coke into a glass, takes a sip. And then he rattles the can. We can all hear there's something in there takes a knife, cuts open the can, and he dumps out a lemon, which is peculiar. (laughs) Then he takes the knife, and he cuts open the lemon, and he pulls out the quarter with T-S on it. Yeah. (laughs) That's what I said. I was sitting right there. I was losing my mind. And I asked the same question everybody else in that room was asking. How did he do that? That was an amazing trick. I could never do that. That magician's amazing. How did he pull that off? Well, as we approach our text today, I think that's the same question that we ought to be asking ourselves. Because it's going to determine how we apply these lessons to our lives. How did Jesus overcome these three temptations from the devil? I asked that question to a friend of mine a couple weeks ago. As we were reading through the Bible together, we came to this passage and I said, how do you think he did it? And he said, well, I mean, the easy answer is that he's Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're four or 24. That's always a good answer. Jesus. Well, I mean, it's true, right? I mean, Jesus walked on water. Jesus cured leprosy and blindness. I mean, Jesus rose from the dead. So, of course, he could overcome these three temptations, right? Well, those are all true statements. But I want you to think with me for just a second. If that's as far as we go, when trying to answer the question, how did Jesus do that? What lesson could you or I possibly learn from this text? Because no one would suggest that you or I should walk on water or cure blindness. But we are called to avoid temptation and falling into sin. 
I think we have to be really careful to not put an invisible force field around Jesus that insulates him from feeling the full weight of these temptations. We can't give him superpower um, abilities like Captain America or Wonder Woman because that would make it impossible for us as mere mortals to follow their example. How does Captain America protect himself from a flamethrower? Well, he just protects himself from danger with that magic shield, right? That fire can't touch Captain America. He is totally safe behind the comfort of his magic shield. Or how does Wonder Woman avoid deadly bullets aimed at harming her? Well, she uses those sweet magic bracelets to keep her safe. Wonder Woman is never in any real danger because nothing could ever get past her bullet deflecting wristbands. So is that what Jesus did in the wilderness? Did he use his superpowers to protect himself from the devil? Was Jesus immune to the attacks because he was fully God? Or was he actually vulnerable to these temptations because he was fully man? Now, there is a theological debate over this question. And I don't intend to answer it in full today, but I do want to raise the tension because it's an important one for us to wrestle with. Some say that Jesus could have never sinned because he was God. His divine nature made it so that he could never have fallen into temptation. Therefore, these temptations from the devil were rendered useless by the superpower of Jesus' deity. Just like Captain America's shield blocks fire and Wonder Woman's bracelets turned away bullets. Others suggest that Jesus' humanity was attacked by the devil. And therefore he bore the full weight of these temptations. Jesus actually had to resist the attacks levied on him by the devil. Because the temptations were real. And because they were real, there's something that we can learn from this passage. So rather than trying to settle this theological debate, I think what we must do is hold both of these positions in proper balance with one another. We can never diminish the deity of Jesus, nor can we discount his full humanity. What we know for sure is that Hebrews 4.15 says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. This text clearly indicates that Jesus was really tempted. And because of that, he can empathize with the challenges that you and I face on a daily basis. And we also now have an example of how to resist the temptation to sin. So how did Jesus do it? I want to start by defining our terms. What is a temptation and how is a temptation different from a sin? Temptation is an enticement to do what is evil. A temptation is a solicitation to do something that you know is wrong. Maple bars are not sinful. But if you're on a diet, you shouldn't eat 12 of them. 
If your doctor tells you that you're pre-diabetic and you need to cut back on sugar, a plate full of donuts is a temptation. There is within you a deep desire to grab some. There is a craving, a deep longing for something that you know you shouldn't have. That's not sin yet. It becomes sin when you act upon the enticement. Because you can't keep birds from flying over your head, but you can certainly keep them from building a nest in your hair. Temptations will ever be in front of us. It's how we respond to the temptations and whether or not we let them dwell and settle on us and then ultimately act. Temptation isn't the sin. Instead, what I'd like to suggest is that a temptation is a call to do battle. It's like the warning light on your dashboard. When your gas light goes on, you're not out of gas yet, but you better be alert or you're going to be in trouble. Temptation is an enticement to sin. It's a call to battle. And temptation is fundamentally different than a test or a trial. I want to look at verse 1 to help us understand how a temptation differs from a test or a trial. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Led by the Spirit, good guy, to be tempted by the devil, bad guy. Does this seem strange to anyone besides me? And didn't Jesus teach us to pray that we wouldn't be led into temptation? So why in the world would the Spirit do this? Jesus was intentionally led into the wilderness by the Spirit. What's happening here? Well, we are being introduced to the two principal actors that will always be involved every time we face a temptation. On one hand, we have the Spirit, who always has a plan for our good. And on the other, we have the devil, whose singular objective is always to oppose the plans of God. When I was in college, I had a professor that helped me understand the difference between the way that the father and the devil view tests and temptations. I was a freshman. It was the third day of class. I was in a class called the philosophy of religion. The third day of class, one of the students asked a question about why God would have Abraham sacrifice his own son. And the professor answered by saying, you know what, that's a really good question. I have no idea what God was up to there. I mean, child sacrifice was a very common thing in Abraham's day. And Abraham was actually a good guy. It wasn't like he was a bad guy that God was kind of trying to make suffer. God asked Abraham to do this horrible, horrific thing. Why would anyone want to follow a God like that? And I didn't prefer that statement. So I raised my hand and said, uh, Professor Talbot, on the first day of class, you handed out a syllabus. And on that syllabus, you indicated that you plan to give us both a midterm and a, file, a final. Is that true? He's like, yeah, we went over that on Monday. 
And I said, well, I'm just a freshman, um, and, and I've never taken a test from you before. All my friends told me I should take this class because you're a really good professor. Um, but, but I'm just a freshman. So I was just wondering, um, on your midterm and on your final, do you write your tests in such a way that you hope all your students fail? Or do you write those tests in such a way that you hope all of your students are able to accurately convey back to you all the wonderful lessons that you taught them in class? He walked over to the front of my desk and said, what are you getting at? (laughs) And I said, well, I don't agree with the way that you just characterized the God of the Old Testament. You characterized God way more like Satan. You made it look like God wanted Abraham to fail. God tests people because he wants to see them succeed. The devil tempts people because he wants to see them fail. It's a very important distinction because we have our two actors with very, very different perspectives on what they want to see happen during that wilderness period. This happens right after Jesus' baptism. Jesus has his coming out party. He gets baptized and God rips open heaven. And he declares, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And then his divine plan was about to be worked out. This was a test. And the test was designed to examine the strength and the grit of Jesus' humanity. And to illuminate the essence of his deity. God's plan was about to unfold. And that plan included... An encounter with the devil who had his own idea about what he wanted to see happen in the desert. We are now about to have a showdown between the devil and the divine. The demonic and the spiritual. The spirit and the flesh. Because every enticement to sin will always include a spiritual and a physical battle. Why did the spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness? Because the wilderness or the desert was always a place that God used to prepare his faithful servants for ministry. Moses had to spend 40 years in the desert tending sheep before he was ready to lead the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt. The Israelites wandered in the desert before they were ready to enter the promised land. John the Baptist lived in the desert before he was called into service as a forerunner for Jesus. You see, the spirit didn't send Jesus into the wilderness to punish him or to inflict undue harm on him. The spirit didn't want Jesus to fail. He wanted Jesus to get stronger, to endure hardship and overcome the temptation So that he would then be able to accomplish a greater mission that awaited him. A greater mission, which was to die for the sin of the world as an unblemished, perfect lamb of God. And the devil knew about this mission as well. The devil knew that the sacrificial system required that a perfect, unblemished lamb be sacrificed. And that's why he wanted Jesus to fail. He knew that if Jesus made it to the cross perfect and without sin, 
He would then be qualified to die as a perfect sacrifice or a perfect ransom for the sin of man. So he had to entice Jesus to sin so that he would disqualify himself from being an accurate sacrifice. That's why Jesus was tempted by the devil. That's why the devil enticed him to do what was evil. He wanted Jesus to fail in his greater mission. And my friends, that's still his master plan today. The enemy wants to take you out and render you ineffective in your mission to honor the Lord and to expand his kingdom here on earth. So he will distract you. He will entice you. He will lie to you and he will mess with your head. He will do anything he can to divert your attention from the spirit of God. And once he's got your attention, he can lead you down any path he wants. So let's look at the tactics that the devil used to entice Jesus. Because he's still using those same strategies today. Years ago, I was leading a Bible study on a similar topic. And while I was sharing, I just kind of came up with this word picture or analogy. And I said, the devil is, is, is kind of like a fisherman. Uh, all the devil really does is he just kind of throws bait into the water and he, he throws things in the water to, to get your attention and to distract you and to entice you to sin. And there was a, a young lady in that Bible study. She grew up in France. She was a missionary kid. And she said, oh, that's really interesting. Did you know that in French, the word for fishing and the word for sin are spelled exactly the same? Did you know that? And I said, no, I didn't know that, but it sure supports my analogy, so we're going with it. And it is a pretty good word picture, right? Imagine the devil like a fisherman. Now, I'm not saying that fishermen are like the devil, so relax. I'm saying the devil is like a fisherman. Every good fisherman knows exactly what kind of bait to throw in the water. They study beforehand. They know which fish like shiny, bright-colored lures. They know which fish prefer live bait or a worm. Good fishermen study their prey, and then they set a trap to hook them. Just like a good fisherman, the devil knows your weakness. He knows my weaknesses. And he will prey on our weaknesses in an attempt to lure you away from obedience to Christ. And if he sets that hook, it's going to hurt. So let's look at how Satan tried to entice or lure Jesus into taking the bait of his temptations. The first one, verse 3. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Remember, Jesus was hungry. After 40 days of fasting, just like a master fisherman dropping a big, fat, juicy worm right in front of a rainbow trout, the devil entices Jesus with a fresh loaf of great harvest bread. He says, come on, Jesus. I know you're out here for a purpose. 
I know that you're trying to fast in order to prepare yourself for your upcoming ministry. I know you got big decisions like which disciples you're going to choose. So I know this time of fasting is important, but I've got a plan for you as well. Why don't you just indulge your flesh instead of investing in your spiritual life? I know you're hungry. I'm sure that your stomach is growling. Just do it. It's not going to be hurting anyone. It's a victimless crime, Jesus. It's just one little loaf of bread. One time. Listen to me. I know what's best for you. It'll taste so good. Just do it. Have you ever heard those whispers? Have you ever been tempted to take a shortcut and indulge your flesh in pursuit of instant gratification? Instead of waiting for the long-term blessings that come from obedience to the mission that God has called you to? I mean, it's just one little click on a website. It's just one night of passion. It's just one drink. And it's a lie. It's a trap. And it's an enticement to actually sin. Verse 5, the devil tries it again. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. The devil takes Jesus to the the temple. And he says, if you really are the son of God, as you claim, prove it. Let's see if your father will really provide for you like you think he will. I mean, you say you believe the Bible is true. Why don't you prove it, Jesus? Do you really trust in God's provision? Does God even really exist? Are angels real? Let's find out. Jump. Prove God's existence. The master deceiver will always try to get you to doubt the goodness of God. He will try to convince you that God's not real. He'll try to convince you that God will not take care of you in your deepest time of need. He'll try to tell you that the Bible doesn't really say what you think it means. And he'll distort the scripture to try to confuse you and get you to doubt your faith. That's what he did here. He wanted Jesus to throw himself into a dangerous situation and then expect God to bail him out at the last second. And my friends, it doesn't work that way. His next attempt happens in verse eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you if you will just bow down and worship me. His last attempt to entice Jesus was to appeal for his desire for power and authority and control. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And then he offered a a shortcut to Jesus. And all he had to do was simply bow down and worship him. Rather than waiting for the establishment of his father's kingdom, he could have all the kingdoms of the world right now. And this way, Jesus wouldn't have to even go to the cross. The cross wasn't part of Satan's plan. He could have the kingdom and the power and the glory right now. And all it took was a simple bend 
of the knee. Have you ever been enticed by a desire for power, prestige, or recognition? Have you had the opportunity to make a small little personal compromise in order to climb a ladder or to attain a powerful seat at the table? Has the enemy ever set a trap for you by preying on your desire for recognition, fame, or fortune? He hasn't changed his tactics one bit. He still preys on the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. The devil threw his best efforts at Jesus. He enticed him with his entire bag of tricks. He used every lure in his tackle box, but Jesus wouldn't bite. So how did he do it? How did Jesus resist? How did he avoid falling from temptation into sin? Well, what we see him doing is quoting scripture. Jesus fought back on a spiritual level by quoting scripture. The book of Ephesians refers to this as putting on the armor of God. When the temptation happens and it's a a call to battle, we've got to be armored up. Jesus responded to the temptation by arming himself for a spiritual battle. He had the sword of the spirit unsheathed and ready for action. Because remember, the battle to avoid temptation will always include a physical and a spiritual element. The armor of God is the greatest tool that we have to combat the schemes of the enemy. But you have to put that armor on. You have to put on the breastplate of righteousness. You have to wield the sword of the spirit. And you have to grab the shield of faith. When the devil said, turn that rock into bread, that was a real temptation. Jesus was hungry. And bread would have satisfied his physical need. There was now a physical battle that he needed to wage. And Jesus used a spiritual weapon to overcome his hunger. What was Jesus' first response? It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of my Father. What was Jesus saying? In a sense, he was saying, why would I listen to you? My father has told me exactly what he expects of me. He has given me a mission to accomplish, and I will not let my physical hunger override my insatiable desire to obey and honor my father. When the devil said, throw yourself off the temple, Let's see if your father will actually send angels to rescue you. Jesus said, I'm not going there. It is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus said, I don't need a physical demonstration of God's power to prove what I already know is true. I know my father is real. I know that he loves me and I know I am safe in his care. When the devil said, worship me, and I will give you everything you've ever wanted. Jesus said, get away from me. 
I will worship God alone, and he is the only one I serve. Jesus said, I'm not buying what you're selling here, Satan. My allegiance is to my Father in heaven, and I will bow to him alone. Jesus resisted the devil and his schemes. Satan tried to prey on Jesus' physical weakness, but Jesus found strength in the word of God. His flesh was weak from fasting, but the spirit within him was strong. Get away from me, he said. James 4, 7 repeats this. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. He was talking to you and to me. He wasn't talking to Jesus, but he borrowed the concept from what Jesus did in the wilderness. How did Jesus have the strength to resist the devil? Remember, Jesus was led into the desert by the spirit. And I don't think the spirit left. I think the spirit continued to strengthen Jesus for moments just like this. And friends, that's the way you and I defeat the enemy. I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings here today. I don't want to make you feel bad. But you are not strong enough to defeat the devil on your own. You do not have the strength to overpower him. But greater is he who is in you, the spirit, than he who is in the world, the devil. Every temptation will always include a spiritual and a physical battle. The spiritual side of the equation is fought in the spiritual realm. And we bolster our spiritual muscle by immersing ourselves in God's word, by walking in step with the spirit, and by relying on him for strength. The power to resist the evil one comes from the spirit. The responsibility to resist is on us. Remember my fishing analogy? I have never talked to a fisherman without hearing at least one story about the one that got away. I think Jesus is the one that got away. Why? Because I believe Jesus saw the hook that was hidden behind each one of the lures that Satan cast in his direction. Satan threw his shiny lures in the water, hoping to entice Jesus so that he could then set the hook of sin. But Jesus saw right through his deceptive, evil tricks. Jesus didn't see a loaf of bread. He saw lack of faith. He didn't see the allure of power and glory. Instead, he saw a shortcut to being crowned king of a kingdom that wasn't his. Jesus didn't succumb to the temptation of the evil one because when he was tested by the spirit, he saw the barbed hook and was able to avoid falling into sin. My friends, overcoming temptation is easier when we can see the hook hidden in the bait. Developing the ability to see through the enemy's temptation isn't a magic trick. It's a spiritual discipline that we can all grow in. The enemy tried to distract Jesus from his mission, and he will try to distract you from yours. Now, you may be thinking, you don't know the temptations that I'm facing. 
You don't know the ways that I am personally being tempted in my life. And if you're to be thinking that, you're right. I don't know what you're going through. But Jesus does. He is our high priest that can empathize with our suffering. He stared down the devil and he overcame. He won in the desert and then he won again at the cross. Jesus always shows us the way. Jesus was so focused on obeying and following the will of his father all the way to the cross that he looked right through every enticement, every roadblock, and every shortcut that was offered to him by the enemy. When you are offered a shortcut, let God's word be a lamp unto your feet, guiding you toward the path of righteousness. When faced with a temptation that seems insurmountable, remember that you have the power to resist through the spirit that lives within you. And when the enemy goes fishing, don't take the bait. Find somewhere else to swim and listen for the father saying, mission accomplished. You have passed the test.